I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's, a ketchup company. Mark and his co-founder, Scott Norton, thought why shouldn't there be a gourmet alternative to Heinz ketchup and started tinkering with recipes in their off-campus apartment while they were students at Brown University. Sir Kensington's was launched in 2010, and the product is available in stores throughout the United States, including Williams-Sonoma, Dean and DeLuca, and Whole Foods. The product is also available in more than 500 restaurants and hotels. Sir Kensington's also makes other condiments, including mustard and mayo. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start in September 2004 with an article written in the New Yorker magazine by Malcolm Gladwell called The Ketchup Conundrum. Basically, the gist of it was that while mustards enjoyed a variety of flavors and various companies made them, ketchup could not share that same diversity. Only Heinz had kind of this perfect blend of sweetness and sourness and bitterness and saltiness, in addition to mouthfeel, which is called umami. Can you tell me about your first encounter with that article? Yeah, we had this idea of ketchup long after that article came out. We didn't read it in 2004. We were in high school and we weren't highbrow enough. And we had this idea when we were seniors in college in 2008, 2007, 2008. The article was brought to our attention. We read it and we thought it was very interesting. I think, you know, in many ways, the food world is very different than where it was in 2004. You know, in 2004, Chobani didn't exist. Coconut water didn't exist in America. You know, so many things have changed since then. So, you know, when we were reading it, we had a very different perspective on what's possible. We thought that he made a lot of great points around product. Ketchup is a very nostalgic flavor. The mouthfeel, like you said, those things are really innate in people. What stood out to us is that there wasn't a lot of discussion around brand. Whereas Grey Poupon really has a fantastic brand and was, uh, he, he mentions, as sort of a breakout star of the mustard category. There weren't, we didn't really perceive there to be a lot of ketchup brands that were doing something interesting in the same way. He talks about this concept amplitude, uh, which basically is a balance of flavors, and that Heinz had a high amplitude. And I have to admit something embarrassing, which is that the article came out a month before I was married, and I thought when I was giving a speech at my wedding, what am I going to say? And I used this concept of amplitude about my husband in my wedding speech. That sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) completely perfect. Yeah. You know, amplitude is present in everything that we eat, everything we consume, right? It's sort of in the way that it's talked about in the article, it's sort of how how intense can the flavors be and how how often do you want to keep going back to that flavor or how long does it take you to get tired of it? Mm-hmm. And I think Coca-Cola has a lot of that, has a lot of amplitude. You don't taste one thing in Coke. You taste many things. And so for me, uh, having something that has high amplitude means it's balanced. The article wasn't the germ or the inspiration for you to launch the company. How did you get the idea to start the ketchup company while you were at Brown? Yeah. Well, the legendary answer is uh, that we were reading about Sir Kensington in history class, and he was uh, part of the British aristocracy and quite a culinaire. And there was a long-lost recipe that he had sort of helped develop after he went to a dinner party at the home of Catherine the Great, and he was served a ketchup that was subpar, so he needed to make his own, and we brought that back to life. Mm-hmm. The real story is that we had the idea to start the company just in the course of normal conversations around food. I mean, we were both... Uh, I have a Lebanese and British family. He has an Armenian family. And so there was always cooking going on growing up and lots of 
family feasts and food was always a very central part of our lives, but we were both econ majors. So we were always talking about food ideas and ways to sort of find the intersection there. And we were just saying how weird it was that if you go to the grocery store, you're overwhelmed with choice, you know, whether it's cereal or yogurt or salsa or milk. But in this one category that is in 97% of American homes, we didn't think there was any choice. By the way, we talk about Heinz as this, you know, behemoth incumbent. Uh, but Henry Heinz was a maverick of sorts. You know, in the late 19th century, there was a preservative in ketchup called benzoate. And he contended that this was actually um, not good for your health. And he replaced the preservative with vinegar, basically pickling the tomatoes. And he won out. Uh, but it was because of his moxie that Heinz was born. Yeah, I, I mean, the story of H.J. Heinz is incredible. And if you, we're lucky that we don't live in, in the world of the late 19th century. The food world was scary. I mean, before truth in advertising laws and before sort of consumer protection, that people were putting all sorts of stuff in food, making all sorts of claims. And food was, in general, not super safe. And H.J. Heinz was really one of the first entrepreneurs to take food safety very seriously. And that was the origin of the glass bottle, which was he wanted to make sure people knew that he was proud to show what was inside. And so I think that you, you know, mean, that resonates with us. Heinz is this iconic Americana brand, and you sought out to do something distinctly different by making this absurdly highbrow, making fun of yourself, but foodie-oriented condiment. When we say that you tinkered with recipes during college, tell me more about that. Yeah, so it was the spring semester of our senior year. Neither of us were writing any sort of thesis, so we had plenty of time. And we just started Googling ketchup recipes. And we had really no cooking background at all. I think at most I had cooked pasta in college, and Scott had probably cooked less than that. But he had an off-campus apartment with a stove. Ketchup, to make it, in theory, it's easy. In practice, it was extremely difficult. We didn't even have aprons, so we cut up trash bags to use as aprons. We didn't have proper gloves, so we used oven mitts. You know, we didn't really, we didn't have any pot bigger than a saucepan. So it took us weeks and weeks. And I think that off-campus apartment still smells like tomatoes. And we developed eight different recipes that we thought were pretty good. And we hosted a series of tasting parties with our friends. And, and our first tasting party was the night of the biggest blizzard that Brown had seen in years. But people showed up with snow pants under their dresses, and, and they helped us taste all these ketchups and give us their feedback. What is a Kensington Kiss? So Kensington Kiss was the result of not having proper protection while cooking ketchup. We didn't have, you know, the right aprons, gloves, or whatever. So a Kensington Kiss is what we called the burn marks on our skin when the hot tomato ketchup would boil off and splatter all over us. So this is senior year of college, and, and you both went off to do different things prior to starting the company. You worked at McKinsey in New York mm -hmm. after graduation, and Scott went on this bicycle ride throughout uh, the Middle East and Europe. At what point did you come back to this idea of starting the company? As we were graduating, the idea was sort of what we thought was coming to a close. We made two formulas that we thought were great. We had a big launch party, sold all the jars we made, and that was going to be it. But we had a lot of friends who were saying, this is a cool idea. You should at least keep working on it. So actually, over the course of 2008 to 2010, we worked nights and weekends on Skype and however we could get in touch, really putting all the puzzle pieces together. And then in 2010, we had gotten it to a point where we felt like it was just waiting for someone to take it over. So I quit my job 
in June of 2010, and he joined in October. We talk about the, the legendary start of Sir Kensington's. How did you come up with the idea of being tongue-in-cheek and being, you know, what you called absurdly highbrow in getting the concept off the ground? When I was growing up, I was always attracted to brands that had personalities. That doesn't necessarily mean literal figurative personalities like a, you know, like a Mr. Peanut. But I think brands need to make statements. And Heinz clearly makes a statement. It stands for childhood. It stands for nostalgia. It stands for fun. And really, it stands for Americana. And we didn't want to go right up against that. And I think, you know, as much as food is about quality and taste, it's also about entertainment. So we didn't want to make anything that was too took our, we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. So Sir Kensington evolved as this character that hearkened to British quality and British cuisine, which in some ways isn't looked at as the best cuisine in the world, but it's certainly looked at as sort of like high tea and, you know, it's the origin of a lot of things fancy. Um, and Sir Kensington was this character that personified these sort of tongue-in-cheek ideas that you could have quality even in the lowliest of things. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's, a condiment company that got its start by making a ketchup that hoped to be a gourmet alternative to Heinz. What is the history of of ketchup? Ketchup actually is a 500-year-old condiment. It started as a fish sauce in Southeast Asia. Mm. It's originally a Chinese word. I think it's pronounced ketsiop. And it sort of migrated with the spice trade from Southeast Asia through Central Asia and it eventually incorporated tomatoes, which are a new world crop. The tomatoes are from Peru. The Europeans brought tomatoes back to Europe, needed a way to preserve them, and ketchup eventually made its way to America. So in 2010, you and Scott decide to launch the company officially. You debuted at the Fancy Food Show. And how pivotal was that for you? For us, that was that little four-foot table that I was standing behind with my sister made all the difference. That's where we met Whole Foods. That's where we met Dean and DeLuca. That's where we met Williams-Sonoma. And I think in many ways we were incredibly lucky that they stopped by because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how pricing worked. We didn't know what distribution was. I mean, we didn't even have a warehouse. The first order of product arrived at my apartment doorstep. And it was a pal- I didn't even know what a pallet was. I was in a doorman building at the time. Doorman called and said, you have a delivery. I said, oh, great. You can just put it in the in the packages room. And he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> this is thousands of pounds of, of I don't know what. And so I had to come back and we, I sort of helped him unload it and put it all in my, in my apartment. So I had a wall of ketchup in the apartment at the time. What was harder for you uh, initially than you thought it might be? Well, sales were hard, still are hard. And so we were taking our cases of product door to door up and down streets of New York to places like Murray's Cheese, um, places like the Chelsea Market. You know, but it was hard, though, because people are busy. They see a million products a day. It's only gotten worse. These jars of ketchup were heavy. So I had them in a roll of like a rolling suitcase. And I would go into these stores and the stores would be filled with people. I mean, it's Manhattan. So there's no room for anything. And I'm in there with my suitcase trying to get them to taste this or see this. And they, you know, they just say, I'll leave a sample and I'll call you back. And the nice people do. But most people, even if they are nice, are too busy to call you back. Figuring out that you have to sort of be persistent while still being nice was a tricky balance to find. Any interesting anecdotes about, you know, approaching Murray's Cheese or, you know, you mentioned Chelsea Market or, um, I don't know, any anything that sticks out? Well, I think the first probably the first thing is our, our our very first New York retailer was Chelsea Market Baskets, which is a store still there, great store in Chelsea Market. And he was willing to put it up on shelf. 
we had most of the product in my apartment. We had some product in a warehouse near where Scott and Brandon were from in Northern California. And so our first attempt to ship, we didn't know that you had to pack glass properly. And we would get these ang- irate calls. You know, I, I have this, I have a box that's bleeding ketchup. There's glass everywhere. What are you doing? And so I had to start hand delivering every week, you know, these boxes of ketchup all around the city because we had no other solution. How did you finance the company in the early days? In the early, early days, we put in our own money. It was it was me, Scott, Brandon, and there was a fourth partner named Wynn, who was also a college friend of ours. But as soon as I decided to leave my job and do this full time, we started to raise a bit of money from family and friends. We tried to raise money from people who were not just supportive, but had done something like this before. So some of our investors have also invested in brands like Pop Chips and Fida Coco and We've tried to raise money from people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so to the degree that we can continue to raise from people like that, that's mm-hmm. that's going to help. What are some mistakes that were made that perhaps, you know, they, they helped with? It hasn't all been easy. We've made a lot of mistakes. One of those mistakes is saying yes to every store that wanted to stock us right away. It was certainly in the early days, just an amazing compliment. So we said yes to everyone. And so very quickly we had product in... Arizona, in Texas, in Maine, in New York, California, all around the country. And I think the dirty secret of the food world is you have to be ready to support that. Mm. You know, it doesn't, things don't just fly off the shelf. And so we we learned the hard way over the course of two years, we were getting into more and more stores. We weren't really paying attention to if once once it got on the shelf, was it getting off the shelf? Did anyone know about it? Was anyone willing to pay? And so we had to go through a period of really pulling back. And and it was actually one of our board members who has done this before, who said you should really lean into your best customers. And for us, that was Whole Foods. What are the sorts of things you did other than, you know, stand there and demo, uh, allow people to try the product? Stores, in many ways, make their money off of vendors, not off of the people who are buying stuff in their stores. So a lot of stores, they'll charge what are called slotting fees, which are, you know, you have to pay just a flat fee to get your product on the shelf. But then to move it, you can do things like demos. But also, anytime you walk into a store and you see a display, you know, at the end of an aisle or sort of by checkout, that's usually paid for. And so being able to um, to have that kind of placement makes you a little more attractive, certainly more visible, because it's also on sale. We found that that's the biggest, that has the biggest impact on sales. And also hardest to get, because mm. everyone's done this math. Everyone wants those kinds of displays. Do you have any better answers for why Heinz dominated the market for so long, other than this amplitude answer that Malcolm Gladwell has? I think that Heinz built their brand brilliantly by being ubiquitous. You know, something like 70 to 75% of all ketchup is consumed in food service, not in retail. So Mm -hmm. food service is basically anywhere you get ketchup for free. Mm -hmm. Restaurants, hotels, travel, schools, whatever. And it's usually Heinz. And so when you go to buy ketchup at home, you're going to buy what you're familiar with. And so for us, from the very, very beginning, it was always about how do we work with restaurants and how do we be omnipresent? You're in more than 500 restaurants uh, across the United States. What are one or two stories uh, about getting the ketchup, getting your ketchup into one of those restaurants? Our big break, I would say, on the restaurant side is working with PJ Clark's. I mean, they're an institution for burgers, and they've been serving the burgers since 1884 with Heinz. I mean, the chef, his name is Mike DeFonzo, phenomenally nice guy, very busy guy. And this was really our first lesson in how to sell in restaurants. There's no sort of process there. So we showed up. He tasted it. He said it was great. said he would call us, didn't call us. 
busy guy. So actually for like four months straight, we would just keep showing up at his doorstep. And he would always laugh and he'd say, you guys, what do you want again? And then eventually he said, I want to do it, but my boss won't let me, the owner, this guy, Phil Scotty. Um, and then, you know, for another six months, we were going back and uh, over and over, trying to get a meeting with him, kept getting blown off, blown off, blown off. And then finally, he allowed us five minutes in his office. And the first thing he said to us, and he was this like legendary guy in our life, right? Almost a year trying to reach this man, Phil. Uh, he turns to us and he says, you are the most persistent guys I have ever met. What do you have for me? And so we, we told him our story very briefly, and he was a smoker at the time, um, and we gave him an, uh, an engraved Zippo lighter with PJ Clarks on it, and it was really sort of the way to his heart. And we're now very close to him and his wife, Thea, who's been like a godmother to us, and it, it, it all happened, and it was all because it was non-traditionally persistent. I noticed that you're married. You have a ring. Uh, when did that happen? Well, what's funny is I spent 2008 to 2010 at McKinsey desperately fi- trying to find a girlfriend, and I couldn't. Uh, and the moment that I quit to start Sir Kensington's, I decided now I really should be single so I can really focus my time on building Sir Kensington's. And then at the Fancy Food Show, I met Rachel, who is now my wife. What was she doing at the Fancy Food Show? She, at the time, she was a partner at a design firm. Hmm. And so they were looking at packaging and trying to find cool, interesting new clients. And she and her boss had stopped by. They were too expensive for us, so we started dating instead. <laughs> and, and now we're married. What might I not know about you? What do you enjoy doing outside of work? Well, I love spending time with Rachel. I also love cocktail culture. Um, I, I was very briefly a bartender in a, at a bar downtown called White Star. And I learned how to uh, chisel ice from Sasha Petrosky, who's the founder of Milk and Honey, the seminal sort of pre-prohibition or prohibition-style cocktail bar in New York. And I started doing these bar nights in my apartment while I was at McKinsey. The whole idea was to create a space that was fun and was lubricated, but not insane. You know, wasn't sort of a 10 shots for $5 kind of place, and, and but also not the kind of place where you had to whisper. And over time, it, it took on sort of a life of its own, and I created a menu, and people were bringing people I had never met before, and it got up to something like 40 people, and I had almost 100 bottles of liquor in my apartment. And it lasted for almost a year, and it was called, and it had a name. It was called Mark Bar. I have plans to have sort of an underground bar component to Rachel's Cafe when it finally launches. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.